Mark chapter 9, you'll remember that last week we finished up Mark chapter 8 and went all the way through Mark 9, 1, because really verse 1 of chapter 9 is in context of chapter 8 and and belongs there with those verses. And so we're going to pick it up today in Mark chapter 9, verse 2. Let's read a little bit. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on the earth can whiten them, not even my mama. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Mo and one for Eli. For Peter didn't know what to say, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Father, we ask that this morning you would manifest that same thing right here in our presence. That our Lord and Savior, your Son, Jesus, would alone be magnified in this place. And that we would obey the command of your word, as you said right here to Peter, James, and John, to listen to your Son, who is the very Word of God. And so this morning, make us attentive now. We submit our hearts to you. We ask that you would speak to us about the ups and downs of life of Christian life, the mountaintops and the valley lows, and that you would encourage us and you would equip us and you would use us to bring glory to your name. And so teach us now through the word. God, I ask that you would take my thoughts, my lips, and let them be submitted unto you. In Jesus' name, amen. Peter, James, and John had a mountaintop experience here in Mark chapter 9. Can you imagine this gathering? This was the gathering of all gatherings. We had Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit, Peter, James, John, Moses, and Elijah. This is one gathering that I would love to have been at. Mo and Eli showed up. Here on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. What a tremendous moment this was in the history of the lives of the disciples. And it really stands as a pinnacle in the lives of those three as this mountaintop experience. Both Peter and John later on as they were used to write scripture would recall it to mind. Peter in his second epistle in the first chapter says, We didn't come up with uh, cleverly devised tales when we told you about Christ Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, and we ourselves heard the voice of the Father from heaven. He's referring to this event on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, We saw with our own eyes Jesus in all his glory. We heard the voice of the Father. Remember now, this is the second time in the Gospels that the Father has said, This is my beloved Son. The first time was at his baptism, and this time he says, Listen to him. You'll remember the first miracle of Jesus in Cana of Galilee when he turned the wine, or I'm sorry, the water to wine, that Mary at that time said, Listen to him. Very important that we listen to him. John also recalled it when he went to pen his gospel. He says in John 1.14, 
And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so this was a moment, this was an event that was never to be forgotten by Peter, James, and John, that inner circle of the disciples as they were privileged to be there that day. And what they experienced on the mountain in this transfiguration was a further revelation as to the personhood of Jesus Christ, who He was. They received revelation concerning His deity. You remember that Peter had confessed in chapter 8, verse 29, that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, there in Caesarea Philippi. We talked about it the last two weeks. And so they already were beginning to intellectually grasp the fact that he was the Son of God. But now, for these Jewish boys to be up on this mountain, and we just saw this mountain when we were in Israel a couple weeks ago. We drove right by it. Mount Tabor is the spot where they believe the transfiguration took place. For them to be on that mountain, and to have not only the Lord with them, but now the Lord transfigured. We'll talk about what that means in a minute. But the Lord now in glory, and also Moses and Eli in glory, Elijah. Understand, in the Jewish mindset, there were no better dudes in all the Bible than Moses and Elijah. When they wanted to speak of the Old Testament, they would say, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. They said Moses to represent all of the law of the Old Testament. And they said Elijah to represent all the writings of the prophets. Moses and Elijah were paramount figures in Judaism. They represent the whole of the Old Testament. And now, as they appear with Jesus, they are testifying to his deity. That he is the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said in Luke 24, 27, when he met those guys on the road to Emmaus and he gave them a little Bible study... It says, Jesus didn't say, but it says in Luke 24, And Jesus began with Moses and all the prophets, and he explained to them the things concerning himself in the Scriptures. So why Moses and Elijah on the mountain? Because the law and the prophets, the whole of the Old Testament, is written about Jesus Christ. It all testifies to the fact of His coming once and His coming again and His salvation for the world and His ruling over the world in the Millennial Kingdom. And so Moses and Elijah appear with Him in glory as a testimony to who He was. And as if it wasn't enough, the voice of the Father comes and says, This is my Son. Listen to Him. And at that moment, we're told in verse 8, that a cloud came and the cloud overshadowed them. And all of a sudden, when Peter, James, and John could see again, Mo and Eli were gone. No more of them. Jesus was there alone, and that was the lesson that they needed to learn, that Jesus is to be exalted above all others. You know, many religions in the world today claim Jesus to be a prophet. They'll say Moses was a prophet, Jesus was a prophet, Muhammad was a prophet, Buddha was a prophet, and there's people who have ascended to a Christ estate uh, now today. The Bible doesn't teach that whatsoever. The Bible gives us here Jesus and Jesus alone, that he is exalted above any other religious figures in all of history. And the father said, this is my only unique son. Listen to him. And there he was, transfigured, meaning he was radiant with glory. Meaning, that which was on the inside was now exuding on the outside. 
You understand, that's what it means to be transfigured. It means that there's a change on the outside that comes from the inside. It is the opposite of masquerading. If you masquerade, you dress up the outside, but there's nothing new on the inside. The inside could be filthy and you could be masquerading around as something wonderful. But transfiguration is the outside displaying that which is on the inside. The book of Hebrews tells us concerning Jesus in Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know the heart of God? Study the life of Jesus. Study the Gospels. Study what He had to say. He is the exact representation and He is the embodiment of all the glory. Colossians 2.9 says that in Christ Jesus, the fullness of the deity dwells. And so on the Mount of Transfiguration, when He appears in glory, He is simply allowing Himself to be revealed for that which He is, God in the flesh. God draped in humanity. And the disciples would testify later on and they'd say, we've seen it with our own eyes, the deity of Christ and the glory of God. And that was their mountaintop experience. That they had a moment, listen now, that they had a moment of clarity. This is, we're going to talk about what it means to be on the mountaintop. They had a moment of clarity, a moment of revelation, a moment where everything else and everybody else faded away and the only thing that mattered was Christ Jesus. That's a mountaintop experience. Everything else fades away and only Jesus is left and only He matters. Now, when do we have as Christians a mountaintop experience? The answer is given to us in verse 2. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. When do we have these moments of clarity? These moments of inspiration, if you will. These moments of clear revelation when all the world has to offer faded away. Nothing else matters except for God and His glory. And we are sure that we are in Him. It's when we get alone with Him. That's why it's so important, Christians, that we schedule time with God. That we don't let our time with God become haphazard. It happens in my life all the time that I'll just get busy and now my time with God, instead of being scheduled and regular and disciplined and fruitful, is somewhat haphazard. And I haven't made a priority to get alone with Him and that's when there comes into my life confusion and a lack of clarity. And a lack of feeling firm and planted upon the rock. And the world begins to get so into my life. And it begins to invade my spirituality. Because it's no longer just me alone with Jesus. There's not this mountaintop experience. I'm somewhere on the side of the hill just clamoring for it. That's why it's so important that we schedule time with the Lord. Moses had a mountaintop experience in Exodus chapter 33. There he was on Mount Sinai. And he had been seeking the Lord. And he said, God, show me your glory. And God said, listen, Mo, for me to show you my glory, I'm going to have to tuft you, or tuck you into the cleft of a rock. And he put him between a rock and a hard place. And he said, my glory will pass by. You can't see my face, but you can see my glory as it goes by. Nonetheless, Moses had an encounter with the glory of God on the mountaintop. What happened when Mo came down in Exodus chapter 34? We're told in Exodus chapter 34, verse 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, the skin of his face shone because he had been speaking with God. He was transfigured, if you will. 
This communion with the Lord that he had had so transformed him in his inner man that it was coming out through his skin. He was exuding God through his pores. Have you ever seen a Christian like that? Don't you love him? Don't you want to be that Christian when you see that one who is just exuding Christ Jesus? It's simply because they've been alone with God. As Moses, when he came down, his face reflected the glory of God. And the Israelites, the little sinners at the time, they couldn't deal with it. It says that they became terrified when they saw the glory of God reflected in the face of Moses. And so Moses would have to put a veil over his face. But what about you and I? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, up on the screen says, But we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. You see there the position and what is meant for the Christian. That we, just as Moses did, are to reflect the glory of God in our very being. People ought to be able to look at us, to observe our lives, to listen to our words and say, this person has been with Jesus. That's what happened in the book of Acts with Peter, James, and John. The Sanhedrin and the ruling religious elders, they were questioning Peter, James, and John, and they said that they recognized them as untrained men, but they knew that they had been with the Lord. Say what you might, but it was undeniable that they had been with God. They were exuding Christ. It says here that we are to do that with unveiled faces because we're to be the light of the world, amen? Jesus is the big light. We're to be the little light. We've got to reflect the big light, reflect the glory. We don't veil our faces. We don't put it under a peck measure. We don't hide it. We let our light shine before men in such a way that they may see our good deeds and give glory to our Father who is in heaven, Matthew 5, 16. But it says that this takes place because we're being transformed into His likeness. How are we transformed into the likeness of God? Romans chapter 12, verse 2, says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Transformed from the inside out as we submit ourselves to the Word of God and the work of God. When we commit ourselves to the Word of God and the work of God, our mind becomes renewed and we hence become transformed. If you're full of the world and the things of the world, you're going to reflect the world. If you're full of yourself and the things of you, you're going to reflect you. If you're full of Christ Jesus and the things of the Word and the things of the Spirit, you're going to reflect Him. But the mind has got to be renewed because the mind is perverted day by day in our society, understand? My mind is perverted day by day living in this society. I am bombarded with sexual images, with sexual messages. I am bombarded with selfishness. I am bombarded with greed. I am bombarded with immorality and all sorts of wickedness all day long in this society. And because I allow it in, it eventually comes out. Dirt in, dirt out. That's why you've got to be renewed day by day and hence be transformed transformed by the renewing of our mind. It happens when we reject the messages of the world and receive the message of God. Understand? And then we're transformed and the glory is reflected in us. There will come a day when that glory of Christ shines through us unhindered and that is when we are with the Lord. Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with Him in glory. 
The Bible teaches that there is an event coming soon called the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and other places. At the rapture of the church, we're told that the dead in Christ are raised imperishable and that we who are alive and remain shall be caught up in the sky to meet the Lord and that we shall be changed, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We shall be transformed. That when the Lord comes for His church and there is the shout of the archangel and the trump of God, we who are alive in the twinkling of an eye will be transformed into glory and will be with the Lord. Why glory? Well, number one, we'll receive the glorified body that is fit for heaven. It's incorruptible. It's imperishable. It doesn't decay. It's designed for life with God. But number two, our communion with the Lord will now be unhindered. And so we shall ever be with the Lord, the text says. And so we will be reflecting his life in glory. Interesting that Moses died up on Mount, uh, what's the name of that mount? Mount Nebo. It's in modern Jordan. It's outside of the land that was given to Israel. God took Moses up to Mount Nebo. There he could oversee the Jordan Valley and the wilderness of Judea looking toward Jerusalem. He saw the promised land, but he never entered in because of disobedience to God. You remember the story. And the tantamount lesson there is that the law will never get us into the promises of God. Mo died on that mount, on Mount Nebo. Elijah never died. The book of Kings tells us that he was caught up into heaven, that the Lord simply took him home. In those two lives, them now appearing in glory on the Mount of Transfiguration in the Promised Land, we have a picture of the rapture of the church. Mo, who died, is now in glory when he's with the Lord. Elijah, who was caught up in the sky, is now with the Lord, and he too is in glory. It's a picture of the rapture of the church. Spoken of here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, that when he appears, we shall appear with him and in glory. What a wonderful future the Christian has. So we reflect the glory of God as Moses did, ever increasingly so as we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, and we are completely transformed and in glory when we finally see the Lord face to face. But these things that we're speaking of, being transformed and beholding His glory, these things happen on the mountaintop. But the Christian life is not all about the mountaintop. We need the mountaintop experience. We ask the Lord for those those moments of clarity. They're available to us. We ought to frequent in them as much as possible. We ought to seek to be alone with Him, to retreat with Him, to commune with Him. But the Christian is not designed to live on the mountaintop. The Christian life is one that's made up of mountain highs and valley lows, you understand. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 11, God says to the children of Israel, But the land into which you are about to cross to possess it is a land of hills and valleys. He told them that the promised land is made up of highs and lows. It's made up of hills and valleys. And so it is if you go to Israel today. The topography is hills and valleys continuously. The promised land in the Old Testament is a type of or a picture of the Christian life. It's not a picture of heaven as some has presumed throughout church history. If it was a picture of heaven, there wouldn't be giants in the land. 
They went into the land to possess it, and there were giants in the land. It's a picture of the Christian life, that we're delivered into the promises of God, into fat and fatness, the Old Testament says, the land that flows with milk and honey. And yet there's challenges in the land. It's a Christian life. It's a land of hills and valleys. There's going to be highs, and there's going to be lows in the Christian life. If you find yourself only in one or the other, you're going to have difficulty. And if you try to only cling to the mountaintop experience, you're going to miss out on something because where is the fruit grown? The fruit is grown in the valley. You see, people don't grow fruit up on the mountaintop. People grow fruit down in the fertile valley. The fruit of the Spirit is wrought through our lives, is born, is worked out in our lives as we allow God to bring us from the mountain down into the valley. Faith is built on the mountain, but faith is exercised in the valley. Warren Wiersbe said this, If we want to share the glory of Christ on the mountaintop, we must be willing to follow Him into the sufferings of the valley below. Someone else said this, and one day a disciple can move from the glory of heaven to the attacks of hell. Didn't we see that with Peter in chapter 8? In one moment, Peter was being inspired by the Father when he recognized the Messiah. And the next minute, he was being inspired with the very words of Satan. One day, the Christian could be on the mountaintop. The next day, he's confronted with the realities of hell. Oswald Chambers says this, the true test of our spiritual life is in exhibiting the power to descend from the mountain. And so our boys are on the mountaintop. They have this amazing experience. But now it's time to come down. And as the disciples descend from the mountain, we're going to watch them now encounter four things that we will frequently encounter in life. Doubts, conflicts, I'm sorry, doubts, questions, conflicts, and demons. These are things that we will encounter in the Christian life without a doubt. Doubts, questions, conflicts, and demons. And I want you to note now as we move through these things that they came after the mountaintop experience. After that revelation. Verse 9. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. We understand that. We've spoken about that frequently, that Jesus didn't want his identity fully revealed to the masses until after the cross. Verse 10. Listen, look very closely. And they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead might mean. Jesus had told them in chapter 8 very clearly In verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus now began to reveal his mission and the cross and the resurrection in very clear words. And yet we see that they are here doubting the clear word of God. Listen. They are doubting the clear word of God. How much clearer could Jesus be? We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered. I'm going to be crucified. But after three days, I'll rise again. And now he says to them again in chapter 9, verse 9. Listen, you saw me in all my glory. Just keep it to yourselves for a little while until I've risen from the dead. And what immediately enters into the life of the disciples after the mountaintop revelation is doubt. It's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve. 
There they are in the garden and they're walking with God in the cool of day. And Satan comes in and says, Hath God really said, Genesis chapter 3 verse 1, Did God really say thus and so? I mean, can you actually take God's word literally? Can you really believe him for all of his promises? He didn't mean all of it. I mean, give God a break. He can't actually do all those things. And we begin to doubt the clear word of God. Now, there's a rule of biblical interpretation that when a text seems to have a clear and plain meaning, then that is the meaning of the text. Jesus said, I'm going to rise from the dead after I'm crucified. It seemed to have a clear and plain meaning, so that is the meaning of the text. Basic rule of Bible interpretation. Given there are other texts that are more difficult to understand. Take a little work. There are other ones that I think we will never understand. But there is so much in the Word of God that is crystal clear, and it is on these points where the enemy wants to sow seeds of doubt. Because it is on the clear points of revelation where we can stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. It is on the clear points of revelation, that which we know, where we can resist the devil and he'll flee from us. You see, they could have stood firm on the fact that Jesus was ride from the dead, but now there comes this discussion. What does he mean? He can't actually mean that. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And those who come to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Very simply, we've got to have faith in the things that God said. We've got to believe them. And the enemy is always wanting us to doubt. The world is always wanting us to doubt. Academia is always wanting us to doubt. Some of our own sinful nature is wanting us to doubt. That will always be a temptation until we see the Lord face to face understand. Am I the only one who's tempted with doubt sometimes? Speak to me, people. That will always be a temptation until we see the Lord face to face, but resist the temptation. Second thing that happens is in verse 11. Questions now arise. And they ask Jesus, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now there's these questions, and understand there is nothing wrong with, with questions. There's nothing wrong in asking questions. Doubt can be a sinful temptation. We don't want to give into it. But sincere and honest Bible questions are wonderful, and they, were good, and they are good. But I want you to see, and I want you to understand, that after a moment of clarity on the mountain, flooded in a bunch of questions. All right, here's the deal, Jesus. We are just up on this mountain with you. And we saw you glorified. We understand that Mo and Eli were there. We heard the voice of the Father. You affirmed when Peter said that you were the Messiah and the Son of God in Caesarea Philippi, just up north. Uh, we're believing these things, but we have this Bible difficulty. Because Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 say very clearly that before the great and terrible day of the Lord, God will send Elijah to prepare the way for his coming. And so the last book that we received from God was Malachi, the disciples would have in their mind. And then there was this intertestamental period, a period between the Old and the New Testament, some 400 years, where God was relatively silent to Israel. And so the last thing they had was Malachi saying, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, before the coming of the Messiah, Elijah will come. 
It's a valid Bible question. Jesus, we saw you in your glory. We know what we saw. We heard the voice of the Father, but we thought Elijah must come first. And so what's the deal? What did Jesus do? Oh, he got so mad at them. Read the next verse. No, he didn't. He didn't get mad at them. He answered their question. Verse 12. And Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first and restores all things. And yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come and they did to him whatever they wish just as it is written of him. Now the parallel account in Matthew chapter 17 in verse 13 tells us right after this statement of Jesus that the disciples understood that he was speaking of John the Baptist. Jesus told them very plainly, that Elijah came prior to the first coming of the Messiah in the form of John the Baptist. Do you remember when Gabriel came and announced to Elizabeth that she would have a child who was to be John the Baptist? And Gabriel the angel said in Luke chapter 1 verse 17 that he would come in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. And then Jesus says, concerning John the Baptist in Matthew 11, verses 13 and 14, which we have for you here, for all the prophets and all the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who is to come. And so Jesus answered their question very clearly and said that John the Baptist fulfilled the coming of Elijah the prophet. But there's more. John the Baptist was asked one time clearly, are you Elijah? And listen to what he said in John 1.21. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Uh-oh. Oh, man. Great. What's the clear and exact meaning of that? How do we interpret that? Jesus said John the Baptist was Elijah. And John the Baptist says, I'm not Elijah. Let's just answer the Bible question since it was brought up by the disciples. As I stated previously, John came not in the person or form of Elijah, but in the spirit and power of Elijah to accomplish the typical meaning of his mission, which was preparing the way for the Lord, as expressed in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Gabriel the angel said that he would come in the power and in the spirit of Elijah. But then there's more to it. There's going to be, I believe, an actual bodily coming of Elijah prior to the second coming. Why do I believe that? Matthew chapter 17, verses 11 and 12. And he answered, Jesus answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him. Of course, in the second verse there, speaking of John the Baptist. Notice though, Jesus says that he is coming, he will come, but that he already came. Came in spirit and power, but he's coming in bodily form. How is he coming in bodily form? Any ideas? Any clues? Jesus says here very clearly, he is coming, he will come, and he already came. First time with the first coming in spirit and in power of Elijah, next in bodily form. When might this take place? I'm not exactly sure. Jesus can give you clear Bible answers. Sometimes I've got to speculate and conjecture, but allow me to do so as we turn to Revelation chapter 11. 
This has nothing to do with the primary lesson of the sermon today. It's just fun. (laughs) Revelation chapter 11. Before we read Revelation chapter 11, I want you to remember what it said in Malachi chapter 4. If we can go back there, please. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, throughout Bible interpretation, the great and terrible day of the Lord always refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ, not the first coming. That's clear throughout the New Testament and throughout the Old Testament. When you see that phraseology used, the events that follow are speaking of the millennial kingdom or are surrounded by the events of the tribulation. So I believe it's very clear from that verse that Elijah is going to come bodily prior to the second coming, though he came in spirit and power prior to the first coming. And here's what it may look like in Revelation chapter 11, starting in verse 1. And there was given to me, that is John, a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. And leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. For it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months or three and a half years of the tribulation period. Very prophetically important verses. The main point I just want you to get is that there is a temple standing during the tribulation. We know from previous studies that it is the Antichrist temple in which he commits the abomination of desolation. Now, verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. The Revelation, the book of Revelation, is called officially and completely what? The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And I will give authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone would desire to harm them, in this manner he must be killed. These have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Any hints there as to who these two might be? They have the power to shut up the heavens so that the rain doesn't fall. Who did that in the Old Testament? Elijah. James chapter 4 says Elijah was a man just like us and he prayed and it didn't rain. He prayed again and it began to rain. And it says there they also have the power to turn water to blood. Who did that in the Old Testament? Mo, as he went before Pharaoh. God gave him the power to represent before him. And he turned the water to blood. Maybe it's Mo and Eli in the tribulation period. They are the witnesses. They are there in the region of the temple testifying that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And when anybody messes with them, they are devoured by fire from heaven. Mo and Eli, possibly. Fun, huh? Let's get back to the lesson. Go back now. Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, so far we've seen that they came down the mountain and they encountered doubts and that they had questions. 
It's okay to have questions, as we've said before, but there's just one thing that you don't want to do. You don't want to exchange what you do know for what you don't know. You understand there's going to be a lot of things in the Bible that you don't understand. Don't let them side rail or derail you. Don't exchange what you do know, the clear things, for the unclear things. Cling to those things that are clear and ask God about that which is unclear. Very responsible thing to do with your questions is go to the Lord. Jeremiah 33.3, God says, Come and seek me and I will show you great and mighty things which you did not know. The Lord, we're told in Psalm 25 and in John chapter 15 and elsewhere, is willing to reveal secrets to his friends. You got a Bible question? Ask the Lord. But be willing to deal with the fact that he may not always give you the answer. His ways are not our ways. We will never know all things, and so don't lean on your own understanding, but trust the Lord, acknowledge Him in all your ways. So they came down the hill, they had doubts, they had questions, and now they're going to experience conflicts, as we always will after a mountaintop. Verse 14, and when they came back to the disciples, now Jesus and the three disciples joining the rest, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. And immediately when the entire crowd saw Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? Now, I'm I'm just conjecturing for a moment here. But I imagine that after that moment of clarity, the disciples came down into this gathering, this uh, conglomeration of people, this hustle and the bustle in the valley, and they saw once again the scribes. And the scribes were always doubting the identity of Jesus. They were always challenging Jesus and challenging the disciples. And what about this and that and the other? And I just think, as it is in my own heart, that after they saw the Lord so clearly, they came and they saw the scribes and the people arguing and they just went, oh gosh, guys, give it a rest. Enough of this conflict. He is the Lord already. We heard the voice. We saw him mowing. Eli were there and then poof, they're gone and Jesus alone remained. It is settled in our souls that he is the Lord. We are sick of the conflict over it. We're tired of discussing it. We are sure we know that we know. Can you relate at all? When you're just rejoicing in the Lord, you've just had that moment of clarity, that mountaintop experience and you come back down in the world, back down in the valley and the fiery darts. The conflicts, be whatever they may. And you just, at those times, you just want to retreat back into the arms of the Lord, don't you sometimes? Just, oh Lord, I don't even want to deal with it. Can we please call down fire from heaven right now like Elijah and just (laughs) burn these guys? But that's not for us, is it? What does the Bible tell us that we need to do? 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. There's the mountaintop experience. Sanctify, set apart, set apart. Determine in your heart that Christ is Lord. And then always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. The word is very clear what we're supposed to do after a mountaintop experience. Set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. Know that we know. Determine once and for all His identity and our identity in Him and stand firm on that, but be ready to make a defense. 
It's always going to be challenged. Be ready to make a defense. Christians, here's what that means. That means that you have to be biblically prepared, theologically prepared, apologetically prepared. You've got to be able to say, here is the reason for the hope that is within me. You can't just come off the mountaintop after having experienced the Lord and pshaw the conflict. We are the ambassadors of Christ Jesus. We are called to give a reason. We're called to give a defense. And so we've got to guard our hearts by sanctifying Christ as Lord and be ready for the conflict and just be able to give an account. Be ready to share. Be prepared. But share in gentleness and in reverence. And then the last verse there says to keep a good witness. To keep our behavior right before them. Because listen, the more you are transformed and ever increasingly so, into the glory of God, the more you will be in conflict with this world. You understand? The more you are molded into the image of God, the more that you exude Him, the more that He reflects through you, the more you will be in conflict with the world. Not the less, the more. Jesus was the exact representation of the nature of God. He was the embodiment of the glory of God. And what did they do with him? They crucified him. There was too much God in him. The world couldn't deal with it. They murdered him. In the same way, you get too much God in you and you're going to be in conflict with the world. Expect it. Be prepared for it. Deal with it. Rejoice in it. Rejoice that you're counted worthy to suffer for His namesake. Rejoice that you're counted worthy to witness. 1 John 3.13 says, Do not marvel if the world hates you. Jesus said in John 15, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus was a very embodiment of God and the world crucified Him. He said, listen, if the world hates you, it's because of me in you. You are not of this world. If you were of this world, then the world would want you. But you're not of this world. Your citizenship is in heaven. And because you're not of this world, you will never fully fit in. You will never be wholly and completely comfortable in this world. You're not of it. Your citizenship is in heaven. You're a sojourner here. You're just passing through. This is not you. That is you. And so just as they hated Christ, they're going to hate you. Be ready for the conflict. Be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you with gentleness and with reverence. So now we move on to the last problem after descending from the mountain. We see doubts. We see questions. We see conflicts. And now we see demons. Chapter 7, verse 17. And one of the crowd answered him and said, Teacher, I brought you my son. Possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. Here are the disciples, those who went up onto the mountain and those who stayed behind. And here was a real life problem. A kid who was in a whole world of trouble. We see this every single day. Be it demonization, which happens, or be it just giving themselves to the things of the world. Kids, tormented. And here the people say, we brought the kid to you. Did you notice that in verse 17? 
we brought him to you. But in reality, Jesus wasn't there. They brought him to the disciples. You understand, that's the calling of the disciple, to be the ambassador of Christ. When someone wants to get in touch with God, sometimes they're going to get in touch with you. But the disciples weren't able to deal with it. They had been equipped. Listen, listen. They had been equipped to deal with it. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, he gave them authority to cast out demons. We are told in, uh, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 6, verse 7, and we're told in Mark chapter 3, round about verse 14, that Jesus gave them authority over the demonic realm. They had been equipped by God. They had been given authority over demons, but they were not able to deal with the reality of the demons at this moment, even though they had in prior times. It was too much for them. They couldn't handle it. They weren't being effective in their calling. They weren't walking in all that God had given them. They had the authority. They could have done it, but some sort of problem entered in and hindered them from walking in the fullness of what God had. Stopped them from being able to minister to the needs of this kid. The father says in the parallel account of Matthew chapter 17, my son is a lunatic. How many of those do we have running around in Carpinteria? Little lunatics. And we should be able to deal with it. And we've been given authority by Christ to deal with it. And we've been empowered by him to deal with it. And we have the word of God and the spirit of God. But there sometimes enters a problem as was in the life of the disciples. I want you to see very succinctly now what the problem was. Why they were not able to exercise full authority. The next verse. Verse 19. And Jesus answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. There is the problem. Unbelief in the heart of the disciples. He's talking to the disciples there. Oh, unbelieving disciples. I've given you the authority. How long are we going to go through this? Bring him to me. Unbelief, doubt, was what was plaguing the heart of the disciples that kept them from walking in all that God had for them. And do you see the heart of the Lord that he was grieved? I mean, Jesus said, how much longer am I going to be with you guys? The heart of the Lord was grieved. I wonder how often I grieve the heart of the Lord by not using every spiritual resource he has given me. Can anybody relate to me? How often I have grieved the Lord by not using every spiritual resource he's given to me because I'm too wrapped up in my own gig and I allow the things of the world to penetrate and so doubt comes in. Unbelief. They had the authority, but this case was so severe there entered in unbelief. No doubt this was a severe case of demonization here in the Gospels. And the disciples said, I, I just don't know that we can do it. Verse 28 gives us more insight. And when Jesus had come into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why couldn't we cast it out? Lord, what happened back there? That was absolutely terrifying. This kid was a lunatic. He was gnashing at the teeth. He was going into fits of rage. God, this was terrifying. And we had cast out demons before. We know you gave us authority, but gosh, that was, that was too gnarly. Lord, what happened back there? You ever been in that position? Lord, what is going on? And he answers them. Very succinctly, very wonderfully. Verse 29. And Jesus said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. And some manuscripts have fasting. And the King James and the New King James include that. This one, this kind, can only come out by prayer and by fasting. 
What did Jesus mean there? He meant that the disciples had to have been prayed up. They had to have been spiritually alert, spiritually aware, walking in the zone, so to speak, connected with God, walking in the fullness of the giftings of God, in the fullness of the power of God. You see, at the moment it was too late. He didn't mean they only come out because at the moment you see this guy demonized, then you don't eat anything for the moment and then you pray. No, the idea was they had to have already been practicing fasting and they had to have already been in prayer. They had to have had a lifestyle of spiritual discipline. A lifestyle of spiritual discipline. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, when you fast and when you pray, and then he gave the disciples instruction concerning it. Not if you fast and if you pray. But when you fast and when you pray, in other words, it ought to be a normative component of the Christian life, fasting and praying. Lord, help us. There's not one of us that doesn't need to do it more often. But you understand, Jesus is teaching them here. Because you weren't prayed up, because you hadn't been seeking me diligently, because you weren't in the zone, there was unbelief in your heart, there was a lack of faith, and you weren't able to deal with the situation. In fact, he said, that, he said it to him expressly in Matthew 17, 20 in the parallel account. He said, it's because you don't have faith. If you had had the faith of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move and be thrown in the sea, and it would. You see, faith is the key that unlocks the power that God has invested in our lives. When we believe God for all that he has said, for all that he has given us, when we're spiritually alive and alert and we're functioning in faith. Jesus said in Matthew 17, I'm repeating myself now, if you had only had the faith of a mustard seed, what is unique about a mustard seed? Yeah, that's not too unique. A lot of seeds are small. Nothing too unique about it at all. In fact, Jesus was really saying, if you had just had common faith, not theologically speaking, but picturesque speaking, a mustard seed, it's one of the smaller seeds, And it's alive like every other seed. That's why they grow into a plant. You understand that? Very biologically intelligent, aren't we? Seeds are alive. Jesus was saying, you only need a little bit of faith, but if your faith is alive, you can say to the mountain, get up and go into the Pacific, and it will. Our faith has to be alive. How is our faith made alive? Prayer and fasting. Being spiritually alert. Being on the mountaintop. Communing with the Lord. Pressing into the things of God. The authority that Jesus had given them was effective only if exercised by faith and faith must be cultivated through spiritual discipline and devotion. The disciples weren't ready. They weren't able to deal with the problem. And this is going to happen in our lives. There's times where we're ready and there's times where we're not. But here's the good news. God is always ready. What they couldn't do, Christ Jesus could easily do. And let's just read what he did. Let's just see it. Go back now. The end of verse 19, he says to them, disciples, bring him to me. Verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth. Soon as the demon saw Jesus, it tried to exert ownership over this boy. That's what's going on there. Be spiritually aware. Be alert about that. The enemy wanted to exert spiritual ownership. Jesus, this is not yours. This is mine. Look what happens in this encounter. Verse 21. And he asks the father, how long has this been happening to him? You see, Jesus is not in a panic here. He's not in a hurry. This kid is spazzing out on the ground under the influence of this demon. The demon is exerting his picture of ownership. And Jesus says, oh, wow. 
Hey, so how long has this been going on with your boy? I like a little medical history, a little spiritual history on the boy. He's so in control of the situation. God is so in control when everything seems out of control. Give me the medical history. And the sad and horrible news that we need to be very cognizant of is the end of verse 21 there, after Jesus asked the question, the father said, from childhood. You see, this boy had been tormented by demons from childhood. John chapter 10, Jesus says, the enemy came to steal and to kill and to destroy, and there is no age range put upon that statement. The enemy is after our children. From the time he was a little child, Jesus, he's been thrown into these fits of rage. Verse 22, and it's often that he has been thrown into the fire and into the water in order to be destroyed. From the time my only son here was a little kid, Satan has been trying to destroy him. It's the same in our community. It's the same in our lives. It's the same in our situation. Satan is after our children. That's why, parents, we have to take responsibility. We can't trust the government to raise our kids. We can't trust the um, schools to raise our kids. We have got to do it. The Bible exhorts us to teach the kids about God and about the Scriptures and to shepherd them. That is a responsibility of the parent. We've got to do that because Satan is after our children. From the time of childhood, Jesus, that's how long this has been going on. And then he says, in the second part of verse 22, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help. And Jesus said, if you can! Exclamation point. The father says, Lord, if you could do anything. Jesus says, if! If! Oh, Pete, he should have been on the mountain with us, huh? Oh, should have seen me in my glory. No, he didn't say that, but if you can... All things are possible to him who believes. And listen to the sincere heart of the father. Immediately, the boy's father cried out. And he began saying, I do believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, God, I believe that you are able to deal with the situation in my family, with the situation in my community, with the situation in my children, with the situation in our church, with the situation, I believe that you are able, God, but help my unbelief. And there's not a Christian in the world who doesn't live in this dichotomy of abounding faith and yet nagging doubt, of believing God for all things, but when faced with the trials, having to say, God, help my unbelief. And that is a sincere prayer that God will always answer. Jesus didn't have to say anything in response. Verse 25, and when Jesus saw the crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit and said, you deaf and dumb spirit, I command you come out of him and do not enter him again. Jesus now asserts his ownership over the boy. And after crying out and throwing him into a terrible convulsion, it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and the boy got up. What the disciples couldn't do, Jesus was able to do with just a few words. Very simple. And that is the situation in our lives, and that is the valley. After the mountaintop comes the valley. Be seeking times on the mountaintop with the Lord that you'll be ready for the suffering in the valley. In the valley is where the fruit is grown. In the valley is where faith is exercised, where faith is stretched, where faith is test. In the valley is where we come in contact with reality and we are called upon to represent Christ Jesus. Upon the mountain, we enjoy Him. 
But we're not made for the mountains. We're on this earth to do battle in the valley. And so church, be prepared. Amen? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and it's active and it's able to judge between the thoughts and intentions of men and women. And we simply pray that you would cultivate in us a real zeal for being in your presence. God, I I just confess before my brothers and sisters right now that I need more of you. I need more of you in my life. I need a greater commitment to prayer, to communing with you through prayer. I need a greater commitment to fasting, to trusting you for results, to denying the flesh, to laying aside the things of the flesh and pressing into the things of you. God, I need a greater understanding of these things and a greater commitment. I want to see you more high and exalted in my life. We want to see you more high and exalted in our lives in all your glory that we might stand in the midst of the valley as more than conquerors prayed up, armored up, and ready to handle what the enemy in this world will bring into our lives, into our families, into our children. And so stir up in us a hunger for you. Make us thirsty that we might come and drink freely of your presence, of your spirit and of your power. And then let torrents of living water pour forth from us, God. You've called us to be your ambassadors. Empower us to do so. 